welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on February 5th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 26. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe what you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, show us the things of Christ and bind us to your love and service forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This story begins with an emphasis on fig leaves, mentioned twice in verse 13. Bible readers can't help but think about Adam and Eve. After they sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves. This was their first act after the fall. Now, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. He is heading towards the cross, and he curses the fig tree for symbolic significance. As we're about to see, the fig tree is a symbol for the corrupt temple. But more than that, let us not forget that in Jesus' coming, in his miracles, in his teaching, in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection, the curse laid upon Adam and Eve is reversed. And aside from the destruction of the pigs in Mark chapter 5, this is the only apparent miracle of destruction. And you'll notice how it's situated in Mark chapter 11. It bookends Jesus' sacking of the temple. Jesus' wrath blasts the tree, 
curses the tree and pronounces judgment on the tree. On the surface, this seems like a miracle of destruction. In reality, Jesus' judgment is about destroying the curse laid upon Adam and Eve. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. And so first, I want you to notice the broader context here in Mark chapter 11. And notice that Jesus judges the fig tree. Then Jesus goes into the temple and judges the temple. And then Jesus explains the judgment of the fig tree. So Jesus... The, 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 the activity in the temple, his, his overturning of the tables, his judgment of the temple, is surrounded by this episode with the fig tree. And Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is symbolizing what he did in the temple. It's symbolizing the judgment of the temple. So why is Jesus judging the temple? Well, have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> I mean, there's lots of reasons Jesus is judging the temple. There's lots of unfaithfulness in the history of Israel that they were warned against. But also, more explicitly to hear in, in the book of Mark, we're told in Mark chapter 12 why Jesus is judging the temple. In the parable of the vineyard, which concludes with these words in Mark chapter 12, verse 10, the stone the builder rejected became the chief cornerstone. In other words, not only have the people of God in the Old Testament disobeyed God time after time, rejecting the prophets and their warnings, but now the Messiah has come and they are rejecting Him too. And that's why Jesus is judging the temple. Now, I want you to also notice the setup to this story. And so you have to go back to verse 11. And He entered Jerusalem... And went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So notice here in verse 11, before he judges the fig tree, before he judges the temple, Jesus goes and looks around the temple. Why? Well, this is significant. And the purpose of this is explained to us in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 34 through 45, which gives instructions for how the priest inspects the diseased house. And it says there in Leviticus 14 that when the priest sees something like an infection, the priest examines the infection, quarantines the house for seven days, then returns on the seventh day and examines it again. If the infection has spread, the stones that had the infection in them are to be removed and thrown outside the city into an unclean place. If the infection returns and breaks out in the house after he's removed the stone, it says in Leviticus 14, he must tear down the house, its stones, its wood, and all the plaster of the house and bring all of it outside the city to an unclean place. So verse 11, what is Jesus doing in verse 11? He's inspecting the temple. He's doing the work of the priest. And because the temple is diseased, what must happen to it according to the law of God? It must be torn down. Now Israel's leaders, of course, don't want to tear it down. And so instead of removing the diseased stones and taking them outside the city, the Jewish leaders take the cornerstone the Messiah, the Son of God, outside the city, and they crucify Him instead. And later, the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. 
So we notice the broader context. We notice the setup. And now I want you to notice Jesus' words and actions. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of the coming judgment of the temple. In other words, judgment is declared on the temple. Now, how do we see this judgment? Well, we see Jesus, what he does. He goes into the temple. He turns over tables and all of this. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is disrupting the sacrificial system. He turns over the tables and interrupts the business of the money changers. You see that mentioned there. Why are there money changers at the temple? Well, they are changing out money for the people who are buying sacrificial animals. And notice what Jesus says about it in verse 17. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now Jesus here is quoting two Old Testament passages. The first part of verse 17 is a quote from Isaiah. The second part of verse 17 is a quote from Jeremiah. And so notice first, he criticizes the presence of the money changers by quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Why is he quoting this? Well, Jesus is contrasting the commercial activity of the money changers with Isaiah's vision for the temple. Isaiah's vision for the temple is that it is a house of prayer for all nations. And so the temple is supposed to be a place of worship. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. And yes, other activities are allowed. And we're told in verse 17 and 18 that Jesus is teaching in the temple. So that's not prayer. That's teaching. So things in addition to prayer are allowed in the temple. But the point is that the temple is a place of worship. The temple is supposed to be a place for prayer. And Jesus is cleansing the temple because the commercial activities of the money changers are crowding out prayer. It's crowding out worship. It's crowding out the purpose of the temple. And as he says in the second half of verse 17, it's turned it into a robber's den. Now, I've heard this particular story referenced many times in my life, basically making the argument that, well, this means that there can be no commercial activity on Sunday morning. And they might use this to say, well, you know, the church can't have, a, can't have a little bookstore selling books, which is common and happens a lot. But you can't do that, they say, because of this passage. Or they say there can't be any sort of exchange of goods on Sunday morning. But that's really an inappropriate use of this passage. That's not the point of this passage. When, if you bring a dozen eggs and sell it to someone here on Sunday morning, you're not disrupting worship. In fact, you're enhancing the community of God. Perhaps you're strengthening worship. If a church has a little bookstore and they sell books on Sunday morning that they think it's good for the people to read, that's not disrupting prayer and worship. That's not, that's not how this passage needs to be applied. Jesus is cleansing the temple because the commercial activities here are crowding out prayer and worship. They're making it so that when people go to the temple, they have trouble praying and worshiping the Lord. And they have turned it into a robber's den. This is the second half of verse 17. Jesus objects because money changers are on temple grounds robbing people. That's the word used in the second half of verse 17. How are they robbing people? Well, the temple system, as it was run by these temple elites who had a cozy relationship with the Roman Empire, was dishonest in many ways. And part of the dishonesty was in the nature of the currency transactions. And in Alfred Edersheim's monumental book on the temple, 
He explains that the money changers at the temple only accepted the regular half shekel, which was double the weight. And we don't have to explain the entire, the entire fiscal situation of the first century, but all you need to know is that the net effect is that poor worshipers are paying twice the amount. They're being robbed. The mechanics of the financial abuse are carried out by these money changers, and that's why Jesus calls them robbers. And notice the doves, or the pigeons there, just kind of a point of explanation here in verse 15 and 16. Uh, the doves are singled out in verse 15. Well, doves are the prescribed offering for the poor who could not afford an animal. And this is a provision allowed in the law. You see it in Leviticus 5, Leviticus 12, and Leviticus 14. And so that means it's the poor people especially who are being abused by the temple elite. So what is Jesus doing as he goes into the temple and turns over tables? Well, Jesus is doing the work of a priest. And remember that Jeremiah was given a similar task to go to the temple. Jeremiah goes, this is Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah goes and he tells the temple, le temple leaders, they have made the temple a den of robbers. And that's what Jesus is quoting here in the second half of Mark chapter 11 verse 17. Jesus is saying, this is now a den of robbers. He's saying, now judgment comes to Herod's temple, this rebuilt temple. Why? Because the temple is diseased. More particularly, the leaders who are running the temple system are diseased. Jesus finds a disease in the leadership of the people. Now, what do the leaders do about it? Well, as we saw in Leviticus 14, the leaders are supposed to take out the diseased stone. Instead, they take out the wrong stone. Instead, they take out the chief cornerstone. Again, this is the point of the parable in Mark chapter 12. They don't remove the diseased stone, and so judgment comes upon the temple, full and complete in A.D. 70. So what should we say about Jesus clearing up the temple? I mean, this is one of the most commonly referenced passages in the New Testament, a, a source of fascination for us. What should we say about this? Some people hold this passage up as a story of kind of like the model of righteous anger. But notice it never explicitly says Jesus is angry. Uh, neither does the Matthew version of this story or the Luke version of this story. And so, maybe it's better to compare what Jesus does here to a few other occasions in the Gospels. This story compares to Jesus' holy tirade against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. This story compares to Jesus' indignation towards the leaders at the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. This story compares to Jesus insulting Herod by calling him that fox in Luke 13, 32. And this story compares to Jesus calling false prophets ravenous wolves in Matthew 7, 15. And notice, what do all of those occasions have in common? When all of those occasions, these people ought to have known better. Whether it's the Pharisees in Matthew 23, or Herod and false prophets, they're supposed to be leaders of the people. Or here in Mark chapter 11, when he goes into the temple and disrupts the temple system. In all of these occasions, the people ought to have known better. And it's important for us to pause and notice what 
invites Jesus' particular ire. It's when people who should have known better still go against the will of God. And so you might think, okay, here's this story, this story about the inspection of the temple and the enacted parable of the fig tree, which symbolizes the judgment that Jesus visits upon the temple in preview of the full measure of judgment that comes in A.D. 70. But what is the meaning of this story for us now, 2,000 years later? And notice that's basically Peter's question in verse 21. What is the meaning of all of this? Look at this. There's tremendous meaning in this story, and Jesus wants to make it plain for the disciples. So picking up here in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Peter here in verse 21 is basically saying, well, what's the meaning of all of this? And notice Jesus' answer, picking up now in verse 22. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So what is the meaning of this story? Well, Jesus gives it to us pretty plain here in verses 20 through 25. Jesus' actions with the fig tree are a model for how true believers may also draw upon the power of God. For those who have faith, the impossible is achievable. And Jesus illustrates this with an example every bit as physical as the withering of the tree, throwing a mountain into the sea. That's his example. The impossible is achievable. Now, don't forget the context as we start looking at what Jesus is saying here in verses 20 through 25. The context of this whole story is judgment. The temple system and those who run it are cursed like the fig tree is cursed. They are judged like the fig tree is judged. Why? Well, because, again, as Mark 12 says, they took out the wrong stone. Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers. The disciples draw attention to it in verse 21. What's the meaning of this? And Jesus tells them in verse 22, the meaning of this is have faith in God. And if they have faith in God, they can cast this mountain into the sea. Verse 23. Wait, what mountain can be cast into the sea? This mountain. It says in verse 23, this mountain will be cast into the sea. The mountain they're standing on, the mountain where Jerusalem is, the temple mount will be cast into the sea. Do you see this? Just as the fig tree is an emblem of Israel and the coming judgment, so is the mountain. And what are they to pray happens to the mountain. That is thrown into the sea. And so in order for the heavenly Mount Zion to rise as the highest peak in all the earth, as is prophesied about in Isaiah 2 in the book of Micah, the corrupt earthly mountain of Jerusalem needs to be cast down. And so the question then is what are the mountains 
in your life? What are the mountains in your life that are hindering the coming of the kingdom of God? This corrupt earthly mountain will be cast into the sea, he says in verse 23, because it's hindering the kingdom of God. What mountain in your life is hindering the kingdom of God? You must identify them. And you must pray that those mountains are thrown into the sea. There are mountains of opposition to the gospel, barriers to God's will. What are we going to do about it? We must have faith in God, and we must pray. There are mountains that are in our lives that block the gospel, that hinder the kingdom in our lives, in our vision. And I'm not talking about the mountains of things that annoy you and inconvenience you. I'm talking about mountains that stop the kingdom of God, just like this temple mount was stopping the kingdom of God. So what does God do with it? He throws it into the sea. What is the mount in your life that is hindering the kingdom of God? Because it too must be thrown into the sea. Do you believe the mountains can be removed? Because that's your job. Your job is to identify the mountains in your life that are hindering the kingdom of God and then to cast them into the sea. And how do you do that? Well, you pray with faith. You pray and you believe. You really believe. And it says in verse 25 that when you pray, that you should forgive. Why forgive? Why does he mention that now? Well, when there's a mountain of opposition to the kingdom, the human tendency is to resent those people and hate them. When we pray for God's kingdom advance, our lack of forgiveness hinders our prayers. To pray with a forgiving spirit towards others means to pray with a clean heart. And to pray with a forgiving spirit means that you're letting bitterness go. Think about it. When you pray that the mountain of opposition aligned against the gospel be removed, what are you praying for? Well, you're praying that the goodness of God's forgiveness spreads. And for the kingdom to spread is for the gospel of forgiveness to spread. So how can you pray for the gospel of forgiveness to conquer the world while you yourself pray with an unforgiving spirit? And so what must you do? You must have faith and you must pray. And when you pray, you must do so as a forgiving person with a forgiving spirit. Since forgiveness is God's gift that allows sinners to enter the kingdom of God, you must pray for the kingdom to come with forgiving hearts. Your unforgiveness, in other words, is the mountain. Your unforgiveness is the opposition to the gospel that needs to be thrown into the sea. And so, not only are we to pray with the forgiving spirit, but we are to pray with faith. Look at this in verse 24. It says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In other words, you must pray and believe that your prayers are always heard. And when you ask things according to God's will, they will always be answered. That's what it means to pray in faith. The prayer of faith is to pray to God and to know that He always hears you. That's the prayer of faith. And when you pray according to God's will, He will always answer. That's the prayer of faith. Can you pray the prayer of faith this week? Faith is to prayer what wings are to an airplane. 
without faith, your prayers won't fly. In other words, you should expect answers to your prayers. That's what it means to pray the prayer of faith. Your prayer is always heard and you should expect answers to your prayers. That's praying in faith. And for those things that especially burden you, you should be like the father who sends his daughter out on the date. You should not be satisfied until you see the return. You must keep praying with faith. You must keep watching with faith. To pray in faith is to pray without ceasing, as we're commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. To pray in faith is to pray without losing heart. Like in Acts 12, when the church at Jerusalem prays for Peter to get out of prison. And so you are to pray with the forgiving spirit, and you are to pray with faith. And notice, we're about out of time, but notice just real quickly, there are two other things you must believe when you pray. So notice here, verses 20 through 24, we should, we should pray the prayer of faith. But notice what comes before and after it. Verses 20 through 21, we're reminded that God is the God of divine judgment. And then in verse 25, we're reminded that God is the God of divine forgiveness. And so you're praying the prayer of faith. You're knowing that God hears you and He will answer when you pray according to His will. You're praying with a forgiving spirit. And you're praying to a God whom you know and who knows you. You know this God. You know His character. This is the God of divine judgment you're praying to. And this is the God of divine forgiveness that you're praying to. Now, for most modern American Christians, those two things don't go together. It's either God is the God of divine judgment or He's the God of divine forgiveness. In the sluggish and shallow wisdom of modern American Christians, those two things are contradictions. They could never both be true. But in the messianic wisdom of Jesus, the promise of powerful prayer is when those two things are fixed together in your faith. And so in conclusion, what you're seeing here in verses 20 through 25 is there's four fundamental realities that must accompany your prayers. First, you must pray in faith. Second, you must pray with a forgiving spirit. Third, you must believe that God is the God of divine judgment. And fourth, you must believe that God is the God of divine forgiveness. That's how we've been instructed to pray. And not only that, remember what we're praying for. We're praying to move mountains, the mountains that hinder the kingdom in our lives. This is how God's instructed us to pray. Now, God knows more about God than you do. And God knows more about prayer than you do. And so receive the promises of God. Ask whatever you want. Ask whatever you want. And with these four fundamental realities fixed in your soul, I guarantee you the Lord will hear your prayers. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, as Jesus promised, abide with us forever. When we are tossed about with storms of doubt and an unforgiving spirit, bring us to the mercy seat that we may lay hold of your promises. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.